What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. For show notes from this episode, visit pivotmethod.com slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pivot Podcast. I am so excited to have Todd Henry here with us today. Todd is an author, speaker, podcaster, and he focuses on creativity, productivity, and passion for work and helps people generate fulfillment, and brilliant ideas. He is the author of three books with a fourth on the way, The Accidental Creative, Die Empty, and Louder Than Words. And I'm really excited to dig into Die Empty today because, Todd, I have to tell you, I've had it on my shelf just for the inspiration of looking at the title alone. It's made a huge (laughs) impact. So thank you for being here. Jenny, it is such a joy to get to talk with you. Thanks for having me on. Yes. You say in Die Empty, you cannot pursue greatness and comfort at the same time. And Mm. you ask this fundamental question, how do you set in motion a course of action that will allow you to unleash your best, most valuable work while you still can? Tell me what it means to Die Empty. Tell us all. So about a decade, well, it was a little over a decade ago now, I was uh, in a meeting and somebody asked an out-of-the-blue question in the meeting. Um, it was kind of a critical time for the organization that I was a part of. And uh, he said, what do you think is the most valuable land in the world, right? We all start throwing out you know, guesses and, you know, oil fields of the Middle East, right? And uh, my friend is from South Africa, so, you know, gold mines of South Africa, you know, throwing out all these guesses. And they were all wrong. And he said, no, I think you're all wrong. He said, I think the most valuable land in the world is the graveyard. And we're like, the graveyard? That's a weird response, right? He said, because in the graveyard are buried all of the unwritten novels, all of the untaken risks, all of the uh, unexecuted ideas, all of the uh, the businesses that were never built. And people said, yeah, I'll get around to that tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll do that. Tomorrow I'm going to take action on that idea or that dream. And they never did it. And they pushed it into the future till one day all of that value was buried with them in the ground. That's why it's the most valuable land in the world. And um, that day, I went back to my office. And this really struck me in a profound way. I went back to my office. I wrote two words on an index card, put them in my notebook, put them on the wall of my office. And the two words were die empty. right? Because I, I wanted to know that when I reach the end of my life, I'm not taking my best work to the grave, but instead I'm doing everything I can on a daily basis to empty myself of whatever good stuff is inside of me. By the way, work doesn't just mean our job. I mean, that's one of the most physical manifestations, but any place we add value in our life is work. And I want to make sure that those ideas, those aspirations, those hopes aren't locked up inside of me, but I'm trying my best to, to get that out into the world every day um, so that someday in the you know, hopefully distant future when they lay me in the ground, that I'm not taking my best work to the grave, but I can die empty of regret, but full of satisfaction for a life well lived. And so that's really kind of, I think, what the philosophy is that, that drove the writing of the book, Die Empty, and uh, really has kind of been a life philosophy for me and I, you know, try to instill it in my kids as well. It's so interesting because it is a very powerful call to action. We hear carpe diem and seize the day and things like that, but die empty is very immediate. I think you joke in the book that we have a 100% mortality rate, <laughs> you know, like right. this is happening for all of us. And you also shared the challenge of writing a book about death. I thought that was very interesting that it was kind of a 
conundrum that you faced about whether to adopt this, as you call it, as some kind of motivational slogan, given that there's die in the title. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, and it's, it, it is, um, I guess the book, the book is not about death, right? It's, right. it's actually about life, but it's about recognizing that, listen, we get one shot. I mean, really we get one shot at this and it's, uh, you know, I, I, boy, I can't remember, uh, is it Mary Oliver who said, what is it you plan to do with your one mm. wild and precious life? Right. But what, what are you going to do with your life and are you doing it today? And I think that's an important question for all of us, you know, because I think we all live under this illusion that, oh, we've always got more time. You know, we've always got tomorrow, you know, I'll do it tomorrow or next week or whatever. And, you know, that is why many of us never get around to the things that we deeply care about or the dreams that we have. We don't even take small steps because we think, well, I'll always have tomorrow to do it. And the reality is we're not promised. We're not even promised today, let alone tomorrow. Right. Um, And so if we want to avoid deep, deep regret in our lives, uh, the only uh, remedy is decisive action and uh, steady progress on the things that matter to us. So let's assume that anyone listening to the Pivot podcast, I call them high net growth individuals, like nobody's listening to a career or business podcast if they don't care about learning and growing. So already they've kind of made that distinction for themselves. But why, why then does it happen if let's say high net growth pivoters want to die empty, they get that it's important, they get we're not guaranteed anything. And yet why do we go through phases where we we aren't living that way creatively? What would you say? And you published this book in 2013. So I'm also curious what you've noticed since as people come up to you in speeches and things like that. Yeah, well, you know, nobody nobody sets a goal for mediocrity, right? Nobody nobody want nobody wakes up thinking, I can't wait to crank out a steaming pile of crap today. I mean, nobody <laughs> does that. But but it happens, right? We we slip into these habits. Um, you know, there there are some very fundamental ways that our our brains are wired, certain biological realities about us. And we we crave comfort as humans and we crave predictability and we crave normalcy. We crave to feel like we fit in, like we're part of the norm. And all of those things work counter in many ways to us actually doing the, the things that, that matter to us or the things that might be uncomfortable, taking an uncomfortable risk, pushing ourselves outside of uh, normalcy and, and risking ridicule and risking you know, personal physical discomfort or mental discomfort, you know, psychological discomfort as we're pursuing these things. Um, you know, we risk that when we, when we try, when we strive, um, and it's much easier just to settle into the fold. And so I think for many of us, I think we, we compromise not because we don't care about those things that we aspire to, but because frankly, we are biologically and psychologically wired to crave normalcy. We're, we're, we're uh, wired to crave being a part of what everybody else is doing. And, and over time, that just leads to repetition and mediocrity and uh, assumptiveness and ruts. And it's so easy to just live day after day after day in the same um, groove, in the same rut without even realizing that's what's happening to you and to settle into mediocrity. And that word mediocrity is really interesting to me because if you if you kind of parse it into its original form, it comes from the words medius, meaning middle, and ochrous, meaning rugged mountain, right? So to be mediocre literally means to stop halfway up a rugged mountain, to get halfway wow. to your objective and say, nah, close enough. And I think that's what many of us do. We get 
close enough, we get halfway there and we say, eh, I'll just settle in. It's fine. I've got enough, right? I'm enough up the mountain that I, I feel okay about my effort and I'll just kind of settle in. And again, nobody aims for that. And and also the other thing is I think mediocrity is a sliding scale, Jenny. I mean, I think you could be going to work, delivering on your expectations. Everybody around you can look at you and say, hey, you're doing fine. You know, you're delivering. But deep down, you know that you're settling in. Deep down, you know that you're you're not really delivering your best or you're not even pursuing your best. You're not challenging your, yourself. You're not sharpening your curiosity. You're not pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. You know, you're allowing fear to paralyze you. Some of these forces that can come against us and, and we know that. Nobody else can see it, but we know it. And so I think mediocrity is a sliding scale in that way. That's so, it's such a great point. And I found it interesting that you talk about how success can also lead to fear and resistance and mediocrity because I, I get a lot of people who come to me and they're mid-career. They're very successful outwardly or on paper, as I say in Pivot, that, yeah, they their success is what got them to this pivot point, not any sort of failure or lack of skill or talent, but there's a feeling on the inside that they're ready for more. And yet, I think once a person has been successful and, let's say, made it to a certain level in the corporate climb or in their career, and then it's almost even scarier to take a risk from that point. It- it is because you, you know, people think, oh, well, once, you know, it's easy for those people, the people who are successful, the people who have a little bit of history under, you know, uh, behind them and, and everybody looks at them and says, oh, well, that person's competent and they're successful. Um, I, I think it, in some ways, it becomes harder for people once they have a little bit of success because then they have something to protect. You know, they, they sort of have to guard how other people view them. And they're maybe a little more hesitant to take a risk uh, because there's so much at stake. You know, I wrote about in my latest book, Louder the Words, I wrote about the phases of growth that we go through in our lives and our careers. We develop our voice. You know, we go through this kind of discovery phase where we, we start something new. We're trying something new. Maybe we're new in our career. And then we go through emulation phase. And emulation phase is when we look around and we find other people who are already successful successfully doing what we're doing and we try to emulate them as a way to build our skills and and we see this in the marketplace when you maybe latch on to a mentor or a manager and that's how you kind of learn the basics you develop your chops you know and you, you kind of build your platform for for doing your work and then divergence phase is the next phase and that's when we start finding our own voice and taking risks and developing our own style and trying new things and contributing unique value to the marketplace. But at some point, we all kind of hit this place of crisis or stasis where we're not really getting the same results as we were getting on our efforts. And it seems like we're kind of stuck and nobody else sees it, right? Everybody else looks at us and says, wow, look what you're doing. This is amazing. But we know that we're not growing anymore. And I think many people get to that place where they've contributed some value and they're known for a thing but they feel stuck. They're not growing. They're not developing their skills. So the two places that I find people get stuck, Jenny, the most are in the emulation phase where they say, you know what? I can create enough value just by copying everybody around me, right? It's sort of a cover band in the marketplace. Yeah. It's right. Like I can just sort of replicate what everybody else is doing. I don't really need to find my voice or find my own unique expression or my own unique value. I can just make enough. It's safer to do that, right? Um, because you, you know, you don't get rewarded necessarily for doing that in, in a big way, but you also don't get punished if you're just doing what's expected. 
Um, and then the second place people get stuck is in that kind of crisis phase where they've done something unique, they've contributed unique value, but now they feel stuck because they're still doing the same thing they've always done and they feel like they're just emulating a past form of themselves. And the only way to move beyond that is to go back to the beginning, to learn a new skill, to try something new, find someone else to emulate, you know, develop a new form of expression, a new platform. But it's hard to do that once you've achieved some success because you feel like you have a name to protect or a brand to protect, right? And so you don't want to look foolish. You're afraid of failing, even in small ways, because you're afraid of what that's going to say about who you are. Maybe you've adopted a little bit too much of your identity from your your work, right? And so how you see yourself is identical to the work that you do or your, uh, you know, your your how other people view you in the marketplace. But whatever it is, you're afraid to take a new risk because you're afraid of of failure. So I think in many ways it becomes more difficult to take risks once you've had some success because it does feel like you sort of you have to protect what you've done well and it's interesting because and i'm i'm in the middle of this now too which is that there is also fear if i if i i inherently have to pivot you know as creatives we produce a work it's out there and then there is there is a pivot required you can't just keep doing the same work or i mean maybe someone can but for a lot of us we are going to want to do things different and keep learning and growing and there's this question of will people come with me and maybe not everyone will. That's the reality of it. And I'm curious, do you think that creatives inherently have to go through the crisis state? Does it have to get to that point? Or is there a way to be more continuous in the flow? This is called the die empty flow, where right. it doesn't get to the point of crisis or stasis. So I, I don't think it's necessary that you camp out there, but I think everyone hits a point where they realize, okay, this isn't this isn't working for me anymore. Something is broken. I need something new. And I think for some people, the moment they start to feel, it's kind of like if you, you know, if you start feeling a little bit of pain in your back and you realize, okay, I might be overdoing it a little bit, and you stop and you try something else, right? Um, when you're when you're exercising, um, I, I should have put that at the beginning. When you're exercising, if you feel a little <laughs> pain in your back, right? <laughs> um, um, but but some people wait until that little bit of pain becomes some like a screaming pain, and by that point it's too late. And I think that's what it's like when we hit crisis phase. We we start to feel discontent. We start to feel like we're kind of we're not really contributing unique value. We're not growing anymore. We're getting results, and everybody's happy with us. But we recognize that we are personally not growing anymore. I think the people who continue up the curve without with with minimal pain are those who recognize that early and are willing to try new things to exercise their curiosity to develop new skills and continue up the curve i think those who kind of sit and wait because they're afraid i think they experience more pain later um because they sit in that anguish that realization that i'm kind of phoning it in for a little bit too long and honestly they start to die a little bit when that happens, they start to lose their productive passion. They start their, you know, they, they start to, to atrophy a bit. Um, and so I think the sooner we recognize that, okay, it's time to make a move and we act on it, even in small ways, I think the better off we're going to be. That reminds me of what we were talking about before we hit record, that we were talking about writing next books and you said you write to figure out what the book is about. And yeah. I would think that people listening probably don't realize how, uh, incomplete a book is even when you pitch the proposal or start writing the draft that there's still so much shaping that goes on just by doing the work so it strikes me that partly by rolling up your sleeves again that staves off some of the really intense um crisis buildup that you were just describing 
Yeah, I mean, I think, frankly, one of the only ways to accomplish anything is to jump into it. And you have to have a lay of the land. You know, you have to understand what really the outcome that you're trying to achieve. Um, but how you get there, I think, is very malleable. And so when I start writing a book, I mean, I obviously have a, a foundation of research that I've done and I have a lot of you know, interviews and, and a lot of data, but all the patterns aren't there necessarily. And one of the biggest roles of the author is to take a lot of complex things and to try to to turn them into something meaningful to people, but not in a way that is overly simplistic, uh, but in a way that makes them digestible to people and actionable to people. Um, and, and also, you know, as, as you know, the, the biggest role I think of a writer is to write what is true, not what you wish was true. And I think the most powerful books are the ones that tell the truth, not the truth that we all wish was there. <laughs> and, and so at least if you want to be helpful uh, to yes. people. And yes. so, you know, really the biggest part of writing a book is searching for that truth. What is the baseline of truth here? What is the, how can I make this as simple as I can make it without making it simplistic or overly simplifying it? Because I, I forget who said it, but the old adage of seek simplicity, but distrust it. I think that there's a lot of wisdom there. I think that things are always a little bit complex when you really get to the bottom of what is true. Um, but I think they're not as complex as we often make them to be. So the role of the, the, the writer, I think, is to figure out where is the baseline of simplicity here that is helpful to people but isn't oversimplifying to the point where it's, it's going to distract them or it's not going to be helpful in their journey. I really love that. And and especially you talk about this in Louder Than Words, finding one's authentic voice. And I will say that the, the, the thing people come up to me for after they've read the book or at a speaking engagement, maybe it's the method, you know, in some ways, though, this is very practical and helpful, but it, they'll specifically mention stories where I just share the truth, how yeah. challenging someone was. Someone recently said, thank you so much for your speech today. You gave me the feeling that entrepreneurship is hard, but I can do it, <laughs> you know? And I yeah. was like, yeah. then then I conveyed something right because I don't want to be the person sitting up on stage saying, oh, this is so easy and I have it all figured out. I'm just willing to be honest about what my challenges are and how I work through them and hope that that's helpful for people too. And and I think what there's so much fear, at least when I think of Die Empty, I think some of the fear is what if I speak my truth or what if it doesn't connect or it's kind of scary to reveal vulnerabilities and fears, but that's the thing that connects us most. It is. And it will be, it will be scary and it won't connect with everyone. And that's not the point, right? The point isn't that you're liked by everyone. And the point isn't that you do something that everybody celebrates. I mean, I frankly, just to be really candid, I have met many excellent people in roles that other people look at and think, well, that's not an important role, right? I mean, think of the typical sort of like custodian role or you know, like a bus driver or something like that where people were like, okay, this is, this is, you know, societally speaking, which is you know, wrong, but societally speaking, we wouldn't look at those roles as, you know, important jobs. I've met many excellent, excellent people in those roles. And I've met, I, I have sat down with mediocre CEOs of companies, right? People who are like phoning it in. Yeah. They, you look at them from the outside and you think, okay, this person is very important and successful, but they're phoning it in and they are not bringing their best value and they're not spending themselves on behalf of other people. And they're not trying to pour value into other people around them. And they've settled into mediocrity, regardless of what their bank account says, or regardless of what other people might say about them in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, our only job 
every day as creative people, which we all are, we all have the capacity to create value uh, in the world and to change the world around us. Our only job every day is to bring who we are to what we do and to ensure that we're not allowing our dreams, our hopes, our ambitions, the things that are inside of us, the value we have to create to atrophy because we're failing to put it in motion. Now, listen, we won't get to do everything, right? None of us get to. I hope I, I die with more hopes, dreams, ambitions than I had the day before. I hope that happens, right? Because we don't, none of us get to do everything we want to do. But I don't want to go to my grave knowing that there were things I could have acted on and I didn't because of fear, because of comfort, because I was aimless. I hadn't defined my battles because I didn't understand what I was really trying to do because I allow busy boredom to take over my life, uh, which so many of us do, you know? So uh, that's what I'm saying is I don't want those forces to cause me to settle into mediocrity simply by default, but instead I'm designing my life so I'm getting the most value that I can out into the world while I have the opportunity. So that brings up a question that I have, which is the time frame that we are considering our die emptiness <laughs> and our goals, because <laughs> sometimes I think if we think about and you talk about the last day fallacy, so we can come back to that. But sure. if we think every day I have to die empty, it can feel like a lot of pressure. Absolutely. Okay, maybe for a three-year span, I'm going to die empty every three years. I'm going to empty out like a big creative project. But what have you found to be most helpful that, that honors the natural ebbs and flows of a creative person's life and process uh, versus this like make the most you know I hate the phrase I'll sleep when I'm dead it's like I need right. a lot of sleep and so I think sometimes people might um, even as much as they want to die empty there are some weeks or months where we're just in a, the void in a lull and like no it doesn't feel like you're dying empty in those moments so right, how right. do you manage the whole flow of it yeah, there's a there's a, a phrase I came across in writing this book. I think it's Kuroshi, which is a, a Japanese phrase for death from overwork, right? Yes. Literally working yourself to death. And that is not at all. I'm going to be very clear about it. This is not what this concept is about. Um, it's it's and I, I tried to be really clear about that in the book because uh, if you're doing that, um, you are not going to. You're, you're not going to be bringing the best of yourself to the people around you, to your family, right? Or to your friends or to your coworkers or to the barista at Starbucks, you know? Um, this is not about workaholism. It's not about guilt and it's not about shame and it's not about, oh, I'm not doing enough. I gotta, and I think a lot of people ad adopt this mindset, especially um, people in the marketplace to justify workaholism, right? Well, I've got to get it all out. I've got to get this. And, and that is not at all what this is about. Um, and so I think we have to be really careful to draw those lines and recognize that, hey, my body of work, the delta that exists, the you know, delta being the mathematical symbol for change, the change that exists on this earth because I sucked air, um, is it representative of the sum of who I am? Is it representative of uh, the sum of my greatest accomplishments, of me bringing the best of who I am to the world, or the sum of my greatest compromises, right? And that body of work is not just my job. That body of work is how I treat my family, how I develop myself uh, is a big part of it. You know, how I use my opportunities to serve other people and how I use the opportunities in front of me to uh, to to leverage them to change the, the, the lives of other people around me or to change the world around me. So, all of those things are part of my body of work, and and they're all a result of how I spend my focus, my assets, my time, and my energy on a daily basis. Um, so it's not about 
am I getting everything done? You know, can I work? It's not about working yourself to death. Instead, it's about ensuring that you're approaching your life with meaning, with purpose, and with a clear understanding of what it is you're about and what you're trying to do. That's so, so important to say that. I love that you clarified. And yeah, and I think what I love, you talk about one, one ingredient is asking what problems need to be solved and that one of the key skills we're all going to need in the future is becoming better question askers in the first place, just finding the problems, not to mention then yeah. going about solving them. And uh, just so we don't leave people hanging, uh, because I want to share this from the last day fallacy, I think it's so great. You you basically encourage people not to ask, what would you do if it was your last day on earth? Because it's likely very different than what we would do right. in an average work day or week. But instead, imagine that you'll have a guest accompanying you throughout your day tomorrow. I find that very interesting. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, because, you know, if, if listen, if, if I'm going to live as if it's my last day, I'm going to eat donuts all day. I'm going to probably go skydiving. I'm going to spend everything in my <laughs> bank account, right? I mean, it's not sustainable to say live as if it's your last day because, you know, we would do all kinds of things on our last day that would not necessarily be healthy or viable, right? Healthy for us or the people around us. And so, you know, while I applaud the sentiment behind that, which is don't take today for granted, and I think that's a good sentiment to have, I, you know, sort of, I think uh, in the book I I proposed, you know, imagine somebody's going to walk around with you today and they're going to write a biography of your life based on what they observe today about how you approach your relationships, how you approach your work, how you structure your time, how you sleep, right? All of those things, if, you were, if your biography was going to be written based upon somebody following you around and observing you today, how would you change your behavior um, in order to accommodate that person following you around? And I find that that is a more valuable way to think about spending your time meaningfully than the sort of last day fallacy of, you know, you only live once and spend it all today, you know, kind of thing. I would even extend it to maybe someone's following you for a week or a month and therefore it's okay if tomorrow isn't even a 10 out of 10, but you have, what would you do in this kind of average span of time? Absolutely. No question. Well, and, but you know, for me, the, the idea is today, how am I choosing to treat the people around mm. me today? How diligent am I choosing to be about whatever's in front of me, the work that's in front of me? Am I really bringing myself to what's in front of me, including my bringing myself to my relationships, you know, because that's part of my body of work is how I treat other people. You know, am I taking care of my body? Am I developing myself? Am I taking care of my mind? Am I sharpening my curiosity? Am I feeding, uh, feeding this amazing tool that is between my ears, you know, as Stephen Sample from USC called it, am I communing with great minds on a, on a daily basis and sharpening my, my mental capacity? You know, all of these things are part of our body of work. It's not just our job. Um, it's all of these things. And so for me, it's helpful to think about how would I be approaching those things if I knew that, you know, somebody was going to be observing me, writing down their observations and writing my biography based upon what they saw. What about, what do you think is the killer app or the let's say the antidote if someone is in a place of stagnation or mediocrity or they're not so thrilled with how they're going to be spending that day that someone's shadowing them because you wrote this a couple years ago now so do any of the principles stand out of being particularly meaningful linchpin antidotes to the mediocrity feeling Yeah. I mean, I think that when you start to slip into a place where you feel like I am behaving in a rote way, that my work is rote, that um, I'm in danger of slipping into stasis, mediocrity, fossilization. Um, And this is, listen, this is 
kind of, it's going to sound like trite advice because a lot of the best advice is common advice. And the reason it's common advice is because we have to hear it over and over again because nobody acts on it, right? So we have to keep saying it because nobody does it. Um, But I think it's important that you take a strategic risk every day with your work, that you push yourself in some way to do something that is a little bit uncomfortable for you, that forces you to have to see the world in a new way, that forces you to have to exercise muscles that you don't exercise on a regular basis. Um, I'm not talking about big, stupid risks. It's what we tend to think of when you know, we think of, for example, entrepreneurship. People say, well, okay, well, then I have to go start a business, right? Or I have to, uh, you know, I have to completely blow up my career and just make a career change tomorrow. Um, that's, that is not uh, advised <laughs> for anyone. Uh, you know, I would say that rather than do that, start taking small strategic risks and start exploring a little bit. I mean, nobody sits down and starts a business. Nobody sits down. I mean, you know, nobody writes a book, you know, you write 500 words. That's what you do. And then that 500 becomes a thousand becomes 1500 becomes 2000. Pretty soon you've got a substantial body of work in front of you. I mean, that's how it happens. Same with a business. Nobody just sits down and starts a business. It's the, it's the result of a lot of little calculated risks on a daily basis that eventually add up to something more substantial. So my encouragement to people would be make sure that on a daily basis, you are taking some kind of strategic risk with your work. It could be relational risk. Maybe you reach out to someone that seems a little bit beyond um, who you should be reaching out to. Maybe it's a a risk with your work. Maybe you take a little bit of a risk with your art today that you normally wouldn't take or maybe you try a new method that maybe you normally wouldn't or you you try you develop try to develop a new skill that you uh that scares you a little bit but whatever it is try to take a strategic risk on a daily basis because i find that that's the antidote to stasis for many people well what are some of your strategic risks at the moment I'm taking a lot of risks with this new book. Um, I'm, I'm really trying to push myself outside of my comfort zone um, because a you know, big, big chunk of what I do is I, I write books and then I spend a lot of time with companies, um, sharing the ideas with companies and helping them internalize them and act on them. Um, and so I take risks when I speak. Of course, there's, I've given you know I don't know probably ten or eleven talks in the last handful of weeks um, to companies or conferences, and I always try to take strategic risks with my talks, but I'm really pushing myself as a writer right now to, uh, to really get outside of my comfort zone and to write in ways that are unexpected that surprise me. That's what I, my, sort of my measure is. Am I surprising myself as I'm working? If I'm not, then I'm probably not taking enough risks with what I'm doing. Fascinating. So what kind of writing surprises you? Um, it, you know, it's turns of phrases, it's observations, mm. it's the directness of my tone. Mm. Um, it's really easy for me to slip into, okay, here's a point and here's an example and here's a point and here's an example. I mean, it's so easy to slip into that, right? So for me, um, you know, as a teacher, as somebody who teaches through speaking, who teaches through books, one of the things that I have to regularly challenge myself on is finding connections that may seem tenuous and finding ways of making them apply to uh, to what's in front of you. I actually start my my new book with a story. I can't tell this. I don't want to tell the story because I want it to be like fresh when it you know, comes out. But it was this experience that we had on vacation as a family. And it sort of framed up the entire experience of the new book um, just based on this one experience that I had in a gift shop at, at you know Disney World when we were sort of visiting Disney World. And um, it was it was kind of this really 
interesting, unique experience. But but for me, it's a stretch to try to tie that into leadership principles, which is what I'm I'm working on right now. But that's a kind of strategic risk I'm trying to take right now with my writing is to draw more sort of everyday examples into the work mm-hmm. rather than just saying, this person was a manager at this company and here's right. what they experienced and here are the lessons from that, right? So um, I'm, I'm excited I and mean, I'm really, really excited with, with um, where the strategic risks are leading me. I love it. I love the idea. I mean, that's bold to talk about as one strategic risk every day. I talk in Pivot about smart risks. I don't think I ever used the word risk without putting smart in front of it because I feel yeah, similarly yeah. to you. I wanted to make sure the two go together, but I love the idea of challenging ourselves once a day. And all the examples you gave are so great of the nuance of how we can do that. Um, and then to your point about capturing, I think so much of the creative process that people probably don't even acknowledge as being part of the process, but being curious observers, I even have an Evernote notebook called Curiosity. And when things sort of grab my attention, like your Disney World experience, I'll just put a note in the folder. And then when I go to write or, or actually start creating with a capital C, there are more little nuggets that I've collected like little Easter eggs that I can revisit. So for one thing I want to get better at is fleshing them out in the moment when it's fresh, because I often forget some of the more salient details. I don't know. I don't know how memoirists do it where they remember such richness from like the time they were 10. It's <laughs> remarkable. Isn't that it? kind of brain. Yes. Yeah. Especially <laughs> memoirists who are writing, uh, you know, now from like 30 years ago when you didn't have, yes. you know, like it'll be so much easier for memoirists 20 years from now. They just go back to their old Instagram feed or their old right. Twitter feed or their way or Facebook <laughs> or whatever. It's sort of, oh yeah, that's what I was doing. Right. Uh, I mean, assuming any of those things will be around in 20 years, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting to see how people do that and how vivid their memories are. I wonder if in some ways it's going to inhibit our ability to, uh, to to develop a cohesive narrative of who we are because we have kind of offboarded that that sort of internal memory of our child. You know, we sort of we we store all of our memories now in you know out in the cloud somewhere rather than sort of internalizing those stories. I don't know. It's interesting, right? Or even documenting in the moment instead of being in the moment. I wonder if that right. changes our memory of it or or right. our ability to recall it. It's kind of outsourcing a bit of our memory, even from the get-go. Absolutely. The last thing I want to ask you about, because I just can't not talk about this. I love how you describe a sacred space, or as Joseph Campbell calls it, the bliss station. Or he calls it a sacred place, too, I believe. Maybe you call it bliss station. Can you just briefly tell us how you've created this for yourself, either energetically a sacred space or time in your day or a physical one? Yeah, those are those are both Joseph Campbell uh, phrases, oh, by great. the way, uh, sacred space and and the bliss station. And he talks about how uh, so Joseph Campbell, for those who don't know, he's he's sort of the uh, really probably the pre- preeminent uh, thinker about story and narrative. Um, you know, think like the hero's journey, right? Um, and he says that all of us, he believes all of us need to have a place in our life that he calls a bliss station. The bliss station is the place we retreat to where there are no expectations from the world, um, no external pressures. Uh, you know, we're not going to be distracted in any way and it's filled with things we love. So, uh, you know, a handful of years ago, my, my, family was building a house and I, I told um, my wife at the time, there's like a perfect little corner kind of on the corner of our new house. I said, I, I want to create a place 
uh, in this new house for me to do my life's work. And not my life's work like my business, but my life's work like to develop myself and to just go to retreat, to think, to be by myself. And that's really what a bliss station is. A bliss station is the place, it doesn't have to be a physical space, but it, it could be a time of day and like a park bench that you go to, right? Or it could be, um, you know, you, you get up before anybody else is awake in your household or you you sort of get up and you go for a walk and you pop in the noise canceling headphones and you sort of walk or whatever it is. But it's a place that you go to be alone, to be alone with your ideas, to fill your soul, to absorb the great thoughts of other people, to listen to music that you love. And it's all about filling your well. That's what it is. I love that phrase from Julia Cameron who wrote The Artist's Way. It's all about filling your well. That's the goal of going to your bliss station. And so um, you know, I, I believe that we all need that. If we want to be people who are spending ourselves in a way that's meaningful and valuable, part of that is finding a way to fill ourselves so we have something to give away, right? Because you can't draw water from an empty well. So my encouragement to people is make sure that you have a time, a place to go where you're absorbing the thoughts of others, you're filling your well, you're listening to music that you love, and you always leave inspired because it's really centered around uh, you know how you can develop yourself and 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 um, you know sort of sharpen sharpen your saw and fill your well so that you have something to give away. Amazing, Todd. Thank you so much for sharing all of your insights. I could talk to you about this for hours and hours, but we will anxiously await your next book. Where can people <laughs> find you if they want to keep in touch? So you can find me at toddhenry.com. That's my personal site. And also I have a podcast called The Accidental Creative. And every week we put out episodes talking about things like this and interviewing brilliant guests like you, Jenny Blake. So um, yeah, so you can find the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts as well. You've been at the podcast for a long time now. It's been 10 years, well, 11 years now. What? Yeah, it's funny because- yeah, 11 I years? Absolutely. So when we st when I started the what? podcast, literally like you had to take this device called an iPod that looked like a deck of cards, right? And you had to plug it into your computer and you had to download files to your computer, then sync them up to the iPod. And then you could listen to them on the go. That's what a pod, you know, it's the only way to listen to a podcast at the time, unless you wanted to you know, stream it online. That, and I was not it's into so, doing all that. <laughs> yeah, no, no way. I mean, it's so funny. And, and, now like it's so much easier to listen to podcasts but it was um yeah i started it's funny because when i started 11 years ago i was like you know i think maybe i might be sort of on the back end of this podcasting thing i think maybe oh, i might have missed the curve gosh. a little bit which is so funny because it'd been around for like a year you know when i started it um and now to look at where podcasting and, and on-demand audio has gone has been how's amazing how's that how's that for a lesson in creativity like don't give up just because you think you're late to the show uh okay well, now i have to sneak in oh go ahead and then i have well, one no, I was, I was just gonna say, like it's also a really valuable lesson about getting in early on on uh you like when you see a new technology that matches who you are yes. and the, the unique um you know gifts that you have and your unique sort of means of expression jump on those platforms because if you get in early on the platform then you know you're gonna find an audience the way you just said it is the best way i've ever heard that phrased, which is not just try everything new right away, but when the technology matches who you are. That's brilliant. Uh, what's the biggest thing you've learned doing podcast interviews for however many hundreds over 11 years? Um, you know, the, the biggest thing I've learned is that everybody, every single person that I've interviewed, um, 
has arrived at their understanding of the world via vastly, vastly different circumstances and vastly different, um, you know, whether work circumstances or personal circumstances or educational experiences or whatever it is. But the one thing that I have learned is that you can always learn something about yourself by asking questions of other people. Um, and it's, it's almost like when I, when I'm interviewing people, it's almost like looking in a mirror because mm -hmm. I learned so much about human nature. I learned so much about, you know, the world in general. And I learned so much about myself by asking questions of other people. Um, and so really the biggest gift for me, I mean, I just love asking people questions. I love learning about, you know, what they know and what they've experienced. Um, and, and the biggest part of that is, you know, selfishly, like I do the podcast because I learn so much about myself and I learn so much that I can apply to my own life and my own work by doing it. And I'm privileged I get to share those experiences with, you know, all of our listeners, which is amazing. But I mean, selfishly, I kind of do the podcast for me because I love <laughs> what I get out of the experience of doing it. That is so cool. I know it's so I, I feel the same way that even if no one was listening, and I'm so grateful to everybody who is right now. But even if no one was, it's so enriching. It's one of the most enriching things I've ever done. And I had no idea it would be that way when I started it. Well, and I think that's what makes for a great podcast, right? Is when the host, I mean, all the podcasts I listen to, and I love, um, like yours, are Thank the you you know, the host is genuinely curious and genuinely um, interested in whatever the guest is saying and really wants to get beneath kind of the veneer of it. Um, those are the, those are the best shows. And it's, you know, it's not like, okay, now we're going to ask our slated set of questions that we have for you, right? Or, okay, let's go through the talking points of your book or your movie right. or your whatever. Right. No, it's no, let's have a genuine human conversation and try to get beneath the surface of what's really going on here. And like this conversation with you, I have never talked about much of this stuff before in years of talking about the book Die Empty, wow. which is kind of cool, but That's it's, cool. but you know, and so as a result, it, the conversation is going to be a little awkward maybe, but because we're really trying to get to the human part of this. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, that's what makes it really valuable. And I think um, endearing and helpful to the audience is because it's it's getting to the real and getting beyond kind of the talking points, which, which I love. So I love, I, that I love talking. That. Oh, likewise, <laughs> I feel the same way. And for anyone listening, I feel so awkward, pretty much every question of every interview, but that I just let myself keep going. <laughs> So I'm really you glad you job. said that. Thank you, Todd. And and uh, yeah, it's it's true. It's 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 a willingness. I think this is a takeaway for everyone. It's like a willingness to be awkward and imperfect and just keep going and keep doing it anyway. Yeah, because so. we're all I mean, we're all awkward and imperfect, and yeah. that's the reality. I mean, the reality <laughs> right. of it is. I mean, I think the reason I listen to podcasts is because I it feels like company to me. It feels like other yes. people are are sharing their life with me. Um, and you know, it doesn't feel that way when it's stilted. And so I think the best conversations, um, you know, sort of get to the eminently human aspect of, of, you know, whoever is involved in the conversation. I love it. Well, this has certainly been a highlight of my day and week and month. So Todd, thank you so much again. And, uh, good luck with all your writing for book oh, number so four. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips and templates by signing up for Pivot List, a curated twice-monthly newsletter where I share the inside scoop on what I'm reading, watching, listening to, 
and the latest tools I'm geeking out on. Sign up at pivotmethod.com slash pivotlist. Get show notes from this episode at pivotmethod.com slash podcast. And connect with me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. Remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always? <laughs>